This is the podcast where you meet people who are not similar on the surface. They're not on magazine covers, and they all have different jobs. But like all of us, they've made big choices and ponder the big questions. Learn what makes them tick and what we all share as fellow human beings. This is Get to Know an Average Joe. Today, meet Dwight Witherspoon. Dwight is a colleague at Ericsson, and his geographical story has taken him from being raised in Alabama to moving around the U.S. for college and marriage. He and family lived in Sweden for five years and then returned to the U.S. and to California more than four years ago. I have a journalism background, but I started working in in public relations, in high-tech public relations, as it was called at the time. So let's talk about that shift. When you go, that's, journalists call that, I guess, going over to the dark side. What was that move like for you? Yeah, I think the journalists usually say that that's a a guy that can't cut it in journalism. (laughs) Uh, So maybe that's, maybe that's right. I, I, you know, I I really enjoyed um, my degree, getting my degree in journalism at Auburn. Um, I've loved to write a funny, funny story is I actually, when I went to Auburn, I went over with three friends to sign up for classes and they convinced me on the three and a half hour car ride from Demopolis where I'm from in Alabama that um, I should be an engineer because they were all going to be engineers and Auburn is primarily an, an engineering and an agricultural school and I mean in the beginning I was like you yeah you must be joking because I really hate math and I think engineering seems to have a lot of of analytics and they, t- they actually talked me into it. So I went over to Auburn and signed up for all these engineering classes. So it was great that day because it was like everybody was happy and they were like, we're going to help you through it. And I went back home and I had started this really sinking feeling that I had done something terrible. And my dad uh, agreed with me that that was very, really bad. And so I, I had to really do some soul searching. My mom had died when I was 15 and it was just my dad and I. And he worked uh, really weird hours and... So it was really on me to kind of sit for, I don't remember now, was it a week or two weeks? And I had, I had some time, and I needed to go back to Auburn, and I needed to sign up for something that made more sense for what I was good at because I was really going to be failing at, at, um, at this engineering. I think I, can't, I think I signed up for mechanical engineering, <laughs> just really just laughing, thinking about it. <laughs> so I decided, what, what do I like? And I said, you know, I like to write. I, I, I enjoy writing. And, um, and what, what does that translate to? And so I, I came up with journalism, and then I got excited. I was like, now, now I'm excited about something. So I went back over, and I, it was tough because this was like the second sign-up period, and all the good classes were gone. Um, this was a very analog uh, experience back then. You didn't sign up on computers. So you went over, and you, you went into a room, and you took a postcard or something, and you signed up, and you submitted it if there was room. So I, I managed to sign up for some communications and journalism and English classes, I think, and... I couldn't get out of this one engineering course, and it was like the psychology of engineering, and I had to take it anyway. And I ended up making a C in the class. Maybe I made a B. I don't know. I I did okay, but it was all all of the thinking behind, um, for instance, um, how how you view the world. And people see a 3D world, but really it's a two-dimensional world. Your eyes only see in two dimensions, and then there are visual cues that tell you if something is further away or closer or has depth. And, and that was something that I learned in this class. And I've actually, to this day, never forgotten that uh, and, and met some people in that class that I, that I knew the entire time I was at Auburn, even though they, they actually went on to get engineering degrees. So that was a formative decision, even though you feel like it was the wrong decision at the time. <laughs> it was. I actually haven't thought about it until, you know, sitting here talking to you is how I ended up in, 
you know, doing what I, what I did. And, and I, I'm actually grateful for that time I had to think about what I wanted to do because it, may, it forced me to say, you know, hey, you have a few weeks to think about what you want to do or you're going to be starting school in September and you're going to be in, in, you're going to be in the wrong field of study and you're going to fail and, and you're going to be back here <laughs> um, in Demopolis, Alabama. So you, you need to figure this out. Can we backtrack to what you said about your mom dying when you were 15? Describe what happened and how that has shaped you. So my mom was uh, a teacher and was actually my second grade teacher. She was a, she was an elementary school teacher. I actually remember when I, my mom had us when, when she was young, my sister when she was 20 and me when she was 24. I actually remember my mom in graduate school, believe it or not. She went to, to get her graduate degree and I was toddling around. And so she was uh, always a teacher. At that point she was being, uh, she was a uh, substitute teacher as she was finishing her master's degree. And then she went on to teach elementary school. Years and years later when, the, when this happened, I was 15 in high school. And she was going to visit the, the, the head coach of our football team at the high school. His wife had just had a baby at the hospital. I, I grew up in a small town. And she was going to see the new baby. And I, she actually asked me to go. And I didn't want to go. And she said I needed something to do. And so I, I'm meeting my friends. And, um, and so I went off. My dad came home from work. And he said there's something had, had happened. There was an accident. Did I want to go? Remember, this is you know, before cell phones. So this was, this was 1985 and said, you, you should go see what happened. I think he was already a little concerned because mom wasn't home and you always think the worst, you know, or you, or you wonder, you want everybody to be, he knew my sister was lifeguarding at the pool and he saw me. And before I could leave on my bicycle, somebody drove up into the driveway and, you know, it would just, it, it all happened so fast. It's hard to relive it, but you know, the look on her face was, was kind of told the story. And and my dad and I went to the hospital, and she, she had been killed instantly by a drunk driver. Uh, you know, in the middle of the day, uh, he was driving 60 miles an hour, failed to stop at a, at, a, at a red light, and she proceeded across the intersection on a green light. And I mean, it's 100% his fault. Didn't matter. It didn't bring her back. Um, one, one person in their car was killed. She was killed. The other person escaped. If you've heard the story, almost without anything. And I don't know what happened to them. I never, I never tracked those people down. But it was, you know, obviously the thing that changed all of our lives. It put us on a different trajectory. Looking back on it and now having kids, I can see that I probably recovered the fastest. I was 15. You know, I was getting my driver's license soon. I was playing sports. I was in school. Uh, I was interested in girls. I mean, my uh, my devastation was was deep, but there there was there was a moving on for me whereas if i looked at my mom my dad and my sister i think they it was much harder on them um for for a long time that was the worst day of my life until august of 2014 when uh my then 4-year-old daughter was diagnosed with leukemia and that very very quickly became the worst day of my life not to diminish what had happened to my mom which changed us forever and was awful but she was uh, she was four. She was she had fever for a few days. wasn't eating. It just didn't feel right. We took. Her to T- tell me about her first. What kind of yeah. kid is Mary Stewart? Okay. Well, she so Mary Stewart is. Uh, oh, I mean, I can take you back. You know, to when she was born. I mean, my my I have three kids: a thirteen-year-old William, A.K.A. Will, and uh, I have a nine-year-old Davis, and I have and Mary Stewart, who's now six. She she goes by Massey. 
William is our biological child, or was, you know, after we had William, we had a lot of difficulty getting pregnant uh, again and decided to go for adoption. Uh, could tell the whole podcast on that. Um, there's a lot of disappointment in that. It's a hard process to go through, um, a lot of choices to be made uh, by you, by the, by the birth parents. Um, we had situations where we thought we were going to adopt that fell through literally, you know, after meeting a perspective. Because you chose this method called open adoption, right? If I remember correctly. It's called, you can either call it semi-open or semi-closed, I guess, because the, what happens is the, the adoption agency is an intermediary between you and the birth parents. Davis was adopted, uh, brilliant, beautiful kid. So happy. Davis is just always a smiling, happy kid. Yeah. yeah. Permagrin, you know, he loves life every day. He's been, he's been great. And you know that's how he came to us, and 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 so Mary Stewart. I mean, we were we were actually out on an island in the archipelago called Sandham, and we were in the adoption process for the for the second time, uh, trying to have our third child. And this is the way adoption happens. It was explained to us that you know the prom queen and the and the football captain don't often get together, and and you know the result is is you get to adopt that child. Often times, adoption is is a much different trajectory. It's um, these are these are young kids that are in difficult situations that have made some questionable, if not bad, choices when it comes to their health and and their partnerships. I, and I think the world saw the movie Juno and maybe yeah. envisions that, and it's sure, not I mean, that that's, way. That's that's you know I mean there and there's some truth in that. That movie is a great movie. I think adoptive parents, you know, probably I don't know them all of they, we like that movie and and that story. I think it, you know, do you, do you bring that up? That shows the difficulty in, in making these decisions. And the other side, you know, right, you, you were really meeting the, 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 the young boy and, and girl who were going through this and their parents and their different opinions. And I'm sure, you know, all of that drama happens. There was some drama with, with Mary Stewart, of course, and that um, we, we, called, we got the call and we weren't expecting it. We were waiting on a child, but we weren't expecting the call that day. And what had happened is... Um, her biological mom had gone into the hospital a little bit early into labor. The parents that she would have been matched with decided this was not for them. And you know, I don't blame them at all because maybe maybe two children before, maybe my idea was different um, or would have been different. So we had had William and we had Davis and we were becoming more, um, you know, mature as parents, I guess. And we decided if, if she had issues, health issues, then we would then we would manage that. You were away from work for like three months, was it? A, a couple of months. I was I was out. Um, I was in the U.S. in Florida. She was in the hospital. We we lived in the hospital for almost exactly one month, and um, and really a very frustrating process. A, a, a very, again, an analog process of of the nurses writing down how irritable she was every day. The less irritable being, the more likely she is to leave the hospital, and they would kind of cue down the, the drugs they were using to wean her off, um, the more irritable meant the more time she needed. And in the meantime, we were, you know, the, the adoption process was underway in Florida. We went through that. We spent a, a month in the hospital. We got her out, um, and she was really great and, and beautiful and healthy. And and not irritable as a toddler. Not irritable. Or no, was she? She's not irritable. She's always been a super strong personality. Um, she's the both the combination of... of 
coming to us in such a special way, being our third child, being the only girl, us being a little bit older as parents now after having, you know, a, her oldest brother being nine years older, so or eight, eight years older, I guess, eight and a half. Um, so she's, she's gotten a lot of leeway, her brothers would probably say, but she, she came to us in a very special way, I guess. And, and so we treated her that way, you know, coming out of the hospital, really just trying to nurse her back to health. And we, we finally moved her back to Sweden, which we always felt we were the only people to be Americans living abroad, going back to America to adopt an American child. It seemed like that, that, that box had not been ticked. I'm sure it had, but it didn't feel like it. And every time we would get all the way through a some paperwork, somebody would say, you're going where? And we would say, to Stockholm. And they were like, oh, that threw up a lot of red flags. So my wife worked extraordinarily diligently to get Mary Stewart to be able to get on a plane and come back to Stockholm with us. And then life was really great because Stockholm is fresh air. And I just, my, my own mind, I just felt like this, this kid just needs to be out of the hospital and out off the meds and getting fresh air and get, being, you know, in the sunshine. And and we did that, and so, you know, all was good. Um, and, and we lived there for a few more years and then got an assignment to come to California. We were here and really felt like in August 2014, we were coming off a of vacation and just felt like it was our year to, to get settled into California and Silicon Valley. And and she, you know, as I was talking earlier, she, she had some fevers and wasn't eating. And, you know, the farthest thing from my mind was something so serious as cancer. But I, I did feel that she should get checked out. Went to the doctor and, you know, if I condense the story, we got a call back that night and they just said, go get in an ambulance. And, you know, then you're just, you feel like throwing up and, and crying at the same time because that's not what you want to hear. They allowed us to go in the car instead and, and we drove to the hospital. And it was apparent as time went on that no good news was coming back. You know, if it would have been that she was just anemic or had an iron deficiency or some some blood work that didn't look right was you know if that news had come back we we would have gone home or spent a few days there and it just became apparent that something was was really wrong i haven't told this to many people when they told us it was leukemia there actually was a slight relief and i'll tell you why because it was terrible and it was terrible but as i sat there in the hospital waiting you know at 12 p.m. and my daughter's sleeping and you know, sitting there with my wife, and they could have come back and said, she's got a brain tumor and she has two weeks to live. I mean, that I didn't know. So to come back and hear leukemia after what was going through my mind and listening to what the doctor said, I thought, this is not good, but we have a chance. There's a knowing is better than not knowing also. Knowing is better than not knowing, absolutely, and that's, that's, that's for sure. And also that this is bad, but, but we have a pathway to to normal again if we do, you know, if everything goes well. Did your grief process from your mom inform the grief process with Mary Stewart and this illness at all? Uh, I, I don't know the answer to that. I, I certainly think that I, I knew the score in terms of, of life and death. I mean, I, I knew that, that, that life was, was finite and, um, so, so maybe there was some toughness there. I mean, but then if I'm, if I'm honest, I mean, my wife probably, and she's been my partner in this, she had not had so many bad things happen to her as, as having a, a parent die. And I think she was probably emotionally handled this better than me. Um, I'm the one that still today has, 
had emotional difficulty with with this and and really ride a wave of emotions based on how my daughter feels on any given day. I mean, I I take every tummy ache to think that we're going back to the hospital. And whereas Elizabeth, as my wife says, you know, you're crazy and you need to start realizing that that six-year-olds have tummy aches and and headaches and it's not, it doesn't mean that they're, that they have cancer again. This interview was recorded in June 2016. Two months later, Massey got sick again. Here is an excerpt from Dwight and Elizabeth Witherspoon's blog, wehateleukemia.blogspot.se. Dwight writes, This week has been extremely hard on Elizabeth and me. We feel like we ran a race, but when the finish line came into sight, someone moved it 100 miles away. Now we see that Massey is also very intelligent. Her reading is coming along rapidly, and she has a penchant for numbers but we dare not let our minds think about the future of our little banker, journalist, lawyer, or doctor. The future is only a few days in front of our faces. Our future is a looming transplant and long-term hospital stay. Her future is uncertain with overall cure numbers too depressing to write. Elizabeth writes, Over the last couple of weeks, we've been processing the negative news. As with getting any piece of troubling information, We are sad and mad at the same time. But when you're dealing with pediatric cancer, you don't have much time to wallow in the first stages of grief and angst. As Mary Stewart's parents and advocates, we start looking for other solutions. We've been talking to multiple doctors, reading about experimental drugs, and trying to move past confusion and frustration. The reality is, no one knows how to cure Mary Stewart's acute myeloid leukemia. And so what is left? Hope. In October 2016 and through November, Dwight and Elizabeth and Massey have been at Seattle Children's Hospital for the latest round of treatment. Here's how you can help. Read their blog, wehateleukemia.blogspot.se. Donate to Stanford or St. Jude's or Seattle Children's Hospitals. Give what you can to the Cancer Foundation of your choice. Thank you for listening. And go Team Massey!